0: When you do what you love, like running, racing, enjoying the great outdoors, you want to do it for life. You need to make a change. And that's what Inside Tracker is all about. Founded in 2009 by top scientists in aging, genetics, and biometric data from MIT, Tufts, and Harvard, Inside Tracker is a personalized health and wellness platform like no other. It's purpose built to help you live a longer, more productive life. The first time you use Inside Tracker, its patented algorithm analyzes your biometric data and offers you a clearer picture than you've ever had before of what's going on inside your body. Next, Inside Tracker provides you with a concrete, science-backed action plan for reaching your health and performance goals. Then, using the Inside Tracker app, they track your progress every day, every step of the way. For a limited time, DNF listeners get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Go to Insidetracker.com slash dirt to get your discount code and start using Inside Tracker today, because change is an inside job. In 1919, F. Scott Fitzgerald was flailing. He was making 90 bucks a month at an advertising agency, and his girlfriend Zelda had just ended their engagement in an epic drunken quarrel. Fitzgerald moved to St. Paul, Minnesota, to finish a novel he had started before dropping out of Princeton University to join the army. The result of those life DNFs were This Side of Paradise, a glimmering revelation of a novel about the morality of youth that propelled Fitzgerald to the kind of fame that only TikTok dancers or adorably deformed cats enjoy today. Coasting on the book's commercial and critical success, Scott and Zelda were married in the spring of 1920, and immediately began circulating through New York's fanciest and most literary social spheres. Fitzgerald's next novel, The Beautiful and the Damned, told the story of a similarly handsome young man and his new wife, who wither away waiting for a large inheritance that they receive promptly before realizing their lives had been hollow and empty and die. Fitzgerald didn't just dominate the literary scene, he defined it. He was pinned down and stereotyped as a writer of what he himself had dubbed the Jazz Age. Readers, editors, fans, and haters alike expected him to keep delivering gin-soaked, glitzy, and gilded novels that provided equal parts capitalist critique and indulgent voyeuristic enjoyment of the same's excess. When Fitzgerald tried new forms and ideas, he found it almost impossible to escape his early typecasting. The economics of a creative career also wore thin on Fitzgerald. Scott and Zelda's drinking, smoking, and general jazz-age partying were near mythic and began to draw on the couple's coffers. Zelda spent much of her 30s in and out of various sanitariums and psychiatric institutions, applying significant pressure on Scott to produce work that was commercially successful. He knew what of his writing was good and what was, his term, hack work. The Venn diagram of his most profitable work and his most personally fulfilling writing formed two perfect circles, like the fading spectacles of Dr. T.J. Eckleburg looming over the Valley of Ashes. He once lamented that his story, The Popular Girl, had been written in less than a week, far out-earned, more ambitious literary pieces like Babylon Revisited. As a writer who has spent weeks and even months meticulously researching and writing pieces that attempt to answer a challenging question or plumb the inner depths of my soul, only to have them eclipsed by things like tin shorts to wear this summer, seriously, I feel this. But creative ambition alone doesn't pay rent, and it certainly can't buy good gin. But that conflict wears on the psyche of a writer. Every writer. In a letter to his editor, Maxwell Perkins at Scribner, Fitzgerald wrote, The more I get for my trash, the less I can bring myself to write. Ten years, one great Gatsby, and an ocean of liquor later... Fitzgerald found himself holed up, alone in a cheap hotel room in Henderson, North Carolina. Zelda was struggling with bipolar disorder and living with her parents in Alabama. When Scott wasn't hospitalized for a serious recurrence of tuberculosis, he was sleeping in a buck a night hotel room and subsisting on potted meat, crackers, and raw apples, as he tried to wean himself off alcohol while attempting to excavate himself from the wreckage his life had become the only way he knew how. writing. The result was The Crack-Up, a three-part series of articles published in Esquire that represented an emotional unpeeling and curiously intimate examination of breakage in Fitzgerald's life. The series' first lines are, All of life is a process of breaking down, but the blows that do the dramatic side of the work, the big sudden blows that come or seem to come from the outside, The ones you remember and blame things on and, in moments of weakness, tell your friends about don't show their effect all at once. There is another sort of blow that comes from within that you don't feel until it's too late to do anything about. Until you realize with finality that in some regard, you will never be as good a man again. The first sort of breakage seems to happen quick, the second kind happens almost without your knowing, but it is realized suddenly indeed. He called the series the crack-up because he likened himself to a broken plate, the kind that wonders if it's even worth preserving. Not broken in the physical sense, though his jazz-age hard partying had left him worse for the wear, but broken in that he had felt a fissure, more like a gulf, form in his sense of self, who he really was and who he felt that he was supposed to be. These kinds of breakdowns between identity, sense of self, Who we are and who we think we ought to be are some of the most difficult because they are breaks that happen over time and in private, and often require a lifetime of reconciliation and pasting it back together. I think once we let go of the idea that identity is supposed to be this stable, public thing, that reconciliation and that tension becomes much, much easier. Maybe we can all work on letting go of our identity's dependence on things like athletic performance or ability to distill the pitfalls of runaway American capitalism in a widely acclaimed classic novel. Whether you're an athlete recovering from injury or an author recovering from the pressures of success that come with writing The Great Gatsby, and maybe, just maybe, we can start to view that crack as an opportunity. In The Crack-Up, Fitzgerald writes, The test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. One should, for example, be able to see that things are hopeless and yet be determined to make them otherwise. And that's what this story is all about. Acknowledging that there may not be much hope and running relentlessly in hope's direction. Just in case. From Trail Runner Magazine, this is DNF, a podcast about failure in life and running. I'm Zoe Rome.
1: Yeah, it, it, day one for me began when I was cleared to walk again.
0: This is Hilary Allen, professional runner and author.
1: I remember going to the doctor and, you know, they were happy with my progress. So I was in a boot because I had that um, surgery to repair, basically set some screws in my foot for my ligament to heal. And I was set to be non-weight bearing for three months. And so I was in this boot and I had this scooter because both of my arms were broken. And like this scooter literally became my, my lifeline. Like I couldn't get anywhere without it. If I got up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, I had to have the scooter. Like, I could not wait there, And um, even in the shower, like, to get in and out, like, you know, I had, like, this chair. But, like, it was this whole process to get, you know, into the shower, like, with my scooter. Like, I had a little Wonder Woman on the top of it that, you know, if I was having a really bad day, I'd just press her and she'd tell me something inspirational. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Let's take a step back to a day three months before day one, to what Hillary calls the accident. In 2017, Hillary was leading the World Sky Running Series. The championship race was in Tromsø, Norway, and it would solidify Hillary's win and position as one of the world's best mountain runners. The race was a technical 57K, with the best mountain and trail runners from around the world, vying for top rankings and series wins. Somewhere between the 4th and 5th aid stations, there's a technical and exposed ridge. As Hillary raced along the Hamperoken ridge, a rock gave way under her feet, and she started to fall. And this is where her memory fades. Hillary tumbled over 150 feet and hit the rocky, scree-covered slope six times on her way down. She was airlifted to the hospital with two broken ribs, a couple of fractures in her back, a ruptured ligament in her foot, and two broken wrists. The fact that she had lived and that her injuries weren't worse was a bit of a miracle. But Hillary, once a top-ranked mountain runner, was left scooting around, steering with her elbows since her wrists were broken.
1: I definitely should have died. Like, it's, it's this incredible, like, survival story. But to me, the survival story and the actual story is everything that happened after that. From day one in the hospital till even now where, you know, I'm dealing with my body that's changed and, you know, figuring out how to like put together training cycles and like things to accomplish my goals that I still want to do, whether it's competitively or not. And that to me is like the real it's, it's survival after the fact.
0: Hillary was frustrated that everyone wanted to focus on the trauma of her accident rather than the day to day survival of just existing. Instead of recognizing the difficulty of what she was still working through, many people seemed intent on defining her by an event that she hardly remembered. And so, Hillary set out to take her first tentative steps.
1: When I wa- rolled, it literally rolled into the doctor's office, and they looked at my foot and they're like, okay, like, so now you can start to walk in a boot. I, like... I literally had to have the doctor tell me again because I was like, wait, what? Like, and emotionally I became panicked. Like, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know if I'd be able to remember. And so I remember my mother, she was there with me and she took the scooter as we were walking out of the doctor's office. And I was like walking by the side of the hallway, like with a hand kind of on on the side because, I mean, first of all, it felt like pins and needles on the bottom of my foot. Um, And I just didn't feel confident I didn't I didn't feel like I was using this limb again but I was like completely not confident in it anymore and so then I drove home you know then I decided to kind of like take some steps around the neighborhood just like by myself and honestly I couldn't even really smile because it was just so incredibly painful it was just like just nervy pain I felt confused because I wanted it to be such a celebratory moment but it was so humbling and so sad because i felt like okay yes i'm alive and i was holding on to that for the first three months when i was like rolling around on the scooter just trying to survive and you know emotionally um and, but then like as soon as i was able to like okay like you're you know you're getting back to normal like you're up right now and t- using your two feet i felt like i had so far to go that i i couldn't even celebrate that moment Um, And it was just, like I said, so painful. You know, I was walking with the limp, so I felt like I didn't even have a normal gait. And so I was just judging myself because I didn't know, like, I was like, how am I even supposed to get back to running if I can't even walk?
0: Those long months afterwards felt like an extension of that tumble. Hillary felt like she was falling farther and farther away from who she used to be as an athlete and a person. Hillary, like Scott Fitzgerald, was beginning to encounter the most difficult break of all. Not the physical or mental kind, though they are undoubtedly hard, but a chink in her identity. A crack in the sense of self.
1: Injuries come and go. It never gets easier. This whole loss of sense of self and this whole grieving period that happens when you're injured because it comes from love. It comes from love and passion of something that you truly enjoy doing. And so I think, you know, feelings of grief and sadness and loss are normal um, when, like, these things happen. Um, But what I wasn't prepared for with this injury um, and this accident was the complete loss of sense of self that I experienced. Not only from just being separated from something I loved, like movement and running and being outside, but it was the whole dependency on other people, which previously I had associated with weakness. Because I pride myself on, you know, being strong and independent. And if I want something, I'm going to work hard and I'm going to go get it. And I'm going to, I'm going to accomplish what I want. Um, and what, like, I set out to do, right? Um, but for the first time in my life, I couldn't do that. I was completely dependent on people for every single aspect of my life. And um, with that came an incredible loss of identity, and not only with sport, but just with myself in general. Um, and so the process of like healing and getting back to kind of this idea of like, first of all, like, who am I without being a runner? But then I like even dropped even deeper. Like, who am I? Just who am I? And so there were a lot of pieces to to get back into that because to put that back together, because I felt like I was just this... I was this vase that was like shattered on the floor, and the floor just kept on like growing bigger, and like I couldn't reach the ends of it. And there were like shards over there that like were falling off the edges. Like I felt like I was just losing who I was, and I didn't know where to even begin to put it back together. But I think what happened, especially with um, the athletic part of me, is that I was able to lean into these other things that I've been like all along. Um, a scientist just like a nature lover just curiosity just lean into that and let that kind of marinate and grow into these kind of beautiful things like lean into friendship lean into communities um see what that what that could teach me um and learning to love myself even though i didn't feel you know as accomplished i tried to a be completely honest with my experience
0: Hillary journaled every day throughout her recovery process and documented a lot of it on Instagram, even the not-so-glamorous parts, like needing help getting in the shower, the unsexiness of hours of tedious PT, trying to take those first hesitant steps, and the many, many wobbly, painful steps after. Part of what made that process so hard was the pressure to pretend that it wasn't. Hillary didn't want to make her recovery conform to the smooth narrative arc that plays so well on social media. And in talking about her story, really talking about it, she was able to build connection with herself and others who were going through similar things. I was so sick
1: of other athletes, you know, being injured and then just disappearing and then coming back. And I just felt like it wasn't going to be useful for me. I wanted to show up for myself first and then my community second. And be honest in this process. And that was incredibly helpful for me, not only just for the amount of people and support that reached out, um, but just to be honest with how I was feeling, because I was able to see in real time like other people who were either struggling or you know had struggled could like relate um, to what I was feeling. So I felt less alone.
0: The things that Hillary struggled with most weren't the most outwardly obvious. There's no cast that you can put on your brain that signals, "Hey, I'm kind of struggling in here." There's no scooter that you can use to shuttle around pieces of your newly disintegrated identity.
1: The survival of, uh, is the day that I had all my casts removed and I was appeared, quote unquote, as normal. You know, once I had all my casts off and I was walking around and like no one was treating me differently. Everyone, like, they didn't treat, like, open a door for me or like they weren't cautious. I still felt like this injured person. And then I realized like, holy crap, like, I have no idea what everyone else is going through in this exact moment. It was like a stripping of self almost again, of like, you know, everyone else is dealing with something. Everyone else is also surviving.
0: Though she was able to embrace the slow creep of physical recovery, she struggled with letting go of her own expectations of herself.
1: It took me several months. Like, it was, I think, the better part of six months where I was dealing with this feeling of, like, I may never be the same. And, like, I think it was, like, not until six months, like, after my kind of second surgery in my foot, where I finally was like Hillary just let go of what you're trying to be like let go of this past Hillary that you're trying to come back to like because there was an epiphany along the way that I realized because I think maybe it was just like the removal of the screws and like seeing my foot how it changed I was like you're not the same so you literally cannot come back to this person you are different now
0: um and finally I was able to accept it and this this is hard We're constantly comparing ourselves to past and future versions of who we used to be or who we think we were. My own GPS watch seems to have been programmed in the sixth circle of hell, and it knows it can torture me with just a couple of numbers at the end of a perfectly good run. Numbers that add up to, you're not as fast as you were. You're not who you think you are. And Fitzgerald felt that too. That fear that he may never be as good a man or writer again an understandable feeling when you're tasked with somehow writing something that tops the great American novel. And we all struggle with that on some level—guy running champions and literary masterminds and all of us a little bit closer to the mid-pack of life. But different doesn't have to mean worse. In fact, it rarely does. But when all you know is everything you have ever been, it can be so hard to believe that surrendering to shifts in our abilities and identities might just be for the better. And the only way to find out is to embrace the change and take a leap of faith. Jumping was that spark
1: of hope that I needed. That like literally I jumped. It was like probably like two inches off the ground. And I remember Matt had Matt the, my PT had dis- had prescribed jumping for me in the past, but I was I wasn't ready to do it. Like every time I tried to jump, I was scared. I couldn't do it. Literally I could not force myself to jump. And there's this one day where I was like crying, I couldn't do the freaking jumps. And then, like, Matt was trying to help me, and then he, like, turned to walk away, and I was just like, okay, just try it. And, like, then I, like, I did this little teeny jump, and I was like, okay, like, I can do it.
0: Not only did Hillary have to get comfortable with weird jumps and new abilities, but she needed to confront and update her reasons behind running to reflect that interior growth, too
1: this beautiful discovery of why I wanted to run not because I wanted to be an elite runner again but just because I loved it so much and I wanted to be in the mountains and you know push myself to new places or you know experiences or goals it's funny when you kind of like reach this point of acceptance and like you're like well if I don't want this and I and I and I can't have it anymore then it just like it was so beautiful because I got to rediscover why I loved running
0: again. As that connection to her why grew stronger, so did her desire to see if she could compete, really compete at big mountain races again. Hillary was getting stronger, feeling things out through her recovery.
1: I saw the value in the process of learning learning again and like trying to see what I could do, and and it all kind of was rooted in this, this thing that I wanted to do it. I wanted to see, you know, what was still possible.
0: She didn't feel pressure to race again, just raw curiosity. And so she started training for TDS, a 90 mile race that some call UTMB's crazy younger brother. It's a highly steep and technical route that traverses from Courmayor, Italy to Chamonix around the Mont Blanc Massif. And training was going well until
1: and I was on like I literally had just started my training block it was like the end of January I was gonna like start doing some workouts again and it was like it fresh snow I went out for a trail run I was like three blocks from my house on the road and I slipped and I fell pop I knew exactly what had happened and I just crumbled to the ground and I started crying and as, I mean, that was like ugly tears and I don't think I stopped crying for like a full day. Was that like, I don't know if I could do this again. I called my doctor. Then I called my PT. Then like called an Uber to get me to the hospital. And it was just kind of, I, th- I think like, again, it was like that same grieving experience of like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm here again. But like, it, it just felt like a new rock bottom because like I knew what was coming. And I knew what I was going to have to endure. I knew what it was like to not wait, bear weight. And I knew like, you know, what it meant for surgery and like all of this kind of stuff. And even though I had done it before and it was only one broken bone this time, just emotionally, it just felt so much worse. Because like I said, it's like I know like what is about to happen, like just the emotional depths that
0: I'm going to hit. It was every runner's Groundhog Day nightmare. We like to imagine that once you have that dreaded devastating injury and perfect comeback story, it will all just be smooth sailing from there. But like death and taxes, injuries are inevitable. And sometimes you have to pay quarterly. I like super wish that I could give
1: up. Like I really wish that I could just walk away and be okay with it, but I'm not. Sometimes I wish that. Like of just not knowing, you know, like not having experienced the joy of running or like moving in the mountains. Like sometimes I'm just like, why do I know that that's so good? Or like, why do I know that like that's how I like to express myself or, you know, on a bike or like just being outside? It's like I know what that feels like and I don't want a life without it. And so sometimes I just I just feel stuck like, you know, I'm in a prison of my own making. I don't I don't know it's just this this feeling of just um almost treading water and with no end in sight and like and then you know knowing you know seeing an oasis and like knowing like what it what it feels like to to walk or run on that but like you might not ever get there it's just it's uh it's like this
0: hamster wheel I feel this so hard When I've been injured, I'll stare longingly at people jogging in the park, imagining how nice it must be to just jog, to run without it being your whole thing, your joy de vivre, to be able to just do it in a way where it never once gets tangled up with your concept of self, worth, or identity, to be able to pick it up and put it down like a magazine in a doctor's office. I'm jealous of people who can just dabble instead of almost drowning in something. To never once lie awake at night replaying what it feels like to cruise an alpine ridge or bomb down lush forest singletrack. Because knowing that, knowing how good it feels and how it brings you to life, really, really sucks to have that taken away. But is it worth not knowing? I don't think so. Tis better to have run and lost than never run at all. And maybe it's really good that the universe offers these checks and balances and humbling reminders that it is just running, after all. Part of me knows that I would still be the same person, even if I never once laced up a pair of running shoes, and was instead really into badgammon or knitting. And that knowledge is useful, too. Hillary's ankle healed, and she was able to toe the line at TDS. It was the longest race that Hillary had ever run, and she traded off the leading and secondary position throughout the day, before finishing in second place. The best an American had ever done. Hillary says she wouldn't have been as competitive, as resilient, as just on fire for running and the mountains, as she was if she hadn't been for the very, very bumpy road to get there. And what better way to distill this wiggly and non-linear process than to write about it. Hillary's new book, Out and Back, is a look inside this journey for all its vulnerable messiness. It's also a way for her to reclaim through writing her own story and define what it means to her outside of being the poster girl for medical-grade scooters.
1: I feel like I'm like naked in a crowd. Like, it's out there. Like You can't press delete. It's out there. It's permanent. Like People get to read it. Strangers get to read it. I had to have this thing it's like i can't let other people define me so this is this is how i get past it even if people are going to associate me with injury recovery or comebacks okay let them but then like i get to dictate what it means to me and i'm the one that gets to dictate my own narrative and push back and say okay but this isn't this isn't just a physical recovery story it's more it's bigger than that people can define it narrowly but it's like my it's my responsibility to not pigeonhole myself in that category.
0: When Fitzgerald published The Crack-Up in 1936, a lot of people didn't like it. It offended their literary and personal sensibilities. This was before everyone had a tell-all memoir or podcast. And many saw it as Fitzgerald trying to air his dirty laundry or make excuses for his disappearance from the literary scene. And despite the glaring omissions of his ongoing struggle with alcoholism and extramarital affairs, The Crack-Up was really vulnerable. Ernst Hemingway likened it to standing naked in the middle of the street. But so often when one writer or internet commentator calls another out for going too far or getting too deep, it's just because they haven't sorted through their own stuff yet.
1: As a society, we pride ourselves on an image, and that image is an outer image. And it's like how we present ourselves to the world. How put together are we? What are our PRs? But like what happens when you're at home by yourself, not in front of people? And I think as people, as as athletes, as a society, we're obsessed with putting on a happy face or this image for when someone's watching. It's almost this consumer culture. I wouldn't describe myself as brave. I'm a very calculated person. If I'm gonna take a risk, I've calculated like the pros and cons before I take that risk. Um, But for the first time in my life, I acknowledged fear. I acknowledged that this is uncomfortable, that I do not want to be here. I do not want these people to see me. I'm afraid of what they'll think. I'm afraid of judgment. And I'm still going to go. And that to me is bravery and courage. And it's not something that you can bottle up and like put makeup on and like put it on the cover of a magazine. It's like really raw and real and honest and it's also a universal experience that i feel like every single person on this planet has experienced in some way shape or form i want to use my story as an example and encourage those conversations
0: injuries are vulnerable Even when you get past the physical aspect of that they kind of feel like a little mortality appetizer meant to remind you that no matter how many miles you run in a week or how many races you win, there is really only one logical conclusion to life's training block. They remind us that our body's only constant is change. And sometimes that means getting stronger and faster. But sometimes it also means getting hurt.
1: When I think about resilience, I look at my scars. They're quote unquote not beautiful my legs could be perceived as ugly something clearly has happened to me especially you know like when you're out running and it's cold and they turn like all shades of purple (laughs) looking weird like it's like i can't change it and i'm still gonna wear short shorts and like i'm still gonna like show these things off because to me that's resilient like i am resilient because these things that like literally this 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 cut these cuts on my quad in particular I know that you could have fit a, a hand sideways inside of them, inside of my quad. And like now I'm like a functioning human. Like I have these scars that showed that something happened. But like I have all of these experiences in this body that is made and willing and, and strong enough to take me all these crazy places. To me, resilience, it, there, it's my scars. It's like, you know, you look at this person and you perceive them as... You know beautiful or put together or whatever but as soon as you like zoom in there's all these quote unquote flaws but those flaws like add to the beauty and the story of it all and they don't have to be you know this pristine image of beauty for them to like mean something or make you better or stronger
0: hillary's scars show that she confronted hopelessness but was determined to make it otherwise I'm not sure that this is really the test of a first-rate intelligence, but it sure beats the alternative. Your best days are ahead of you, but you just have to believe it. Maybe you'll never run another good race or write another good novel. Fitzgerald never really did write another great book, but speaking out about his struggles opened the door for important conversations and new literary conventions. Breakdowns can be our biggest steps forward. What matters most is how you tell that story. This episode of DNF was written and produced by me, Zoe Rome, for Trail Runner Magazine. You can find Hillary's new book Out and Back wherever books are sold. Theme music by the band Lotus. Other music is written and performed by Bitby. If you like this podcast, take a second to rate and review it on your favorite platform. You can find this episode and other installments of DNF at trailrunnermag.com.